Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. Today we welcome Michael Moalem on the pod. In the interview, Matthew and Michael take a deep dive into the Lava Jato or car wash operation and the related revelations by the investigative media outlet The Intercept. They also talk more broadly about the current political situation in Brazil. So, without further ado, let's jump right in. Greetings, this is Matthew Stevenson, and I am delighted to be joined by Michael Moalem, who is a Brazilian lawyer, law professor, and consultant based in Rio de Janeiro, who has deep expertise on anti-corruption law and policy, especially in Brazil. And I'm really thrilled that, uh, Michael, you're able to take some time out of your busy schedule to join us today on the podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you, Matthew. I'm uh, really uh, excited and appreciate uh, the opportunity of uh, talking to you and to the followers, the listeners of the podcast. Great. Well, in just a moment, I want to ask you about what's happening right now in Brazil with respect to the fight against corruption. Uh, before we get there, though, could you please share with me and with our listeners a little bit about your own background? How did you come to study issues related to anti-corruption law and policy? And what's been the nature of your work in that area so far? Right. Yeah. Um, it's curious that, well, I'm, um, I've been researching and, and teaching topics related to anti-corruption, to legislative procedure. Uh, but I come also, uh, my background is also related to anti-corruption anti activism. So I was the campaign's director of uh, an NGO named Avas. And I was responsible for, for advocacy and for leading some campaigns. And, and some of them were related to, to anti-corruption, pushing new legislation uh, or policy changes. And so uh, I come from that background. I've done consultancies to um, also Transparency International Brazil uh, researchers uh, and uh, been in uh, a few years back together with Transparency International, we led a an important study called New Measures Against Corruption, which uh, we, we proposed a major package of uh, legislation reform on the anti-corruption agenda, 70 bills, constitutional amendments, and federal, federal law bills. So and, and that was an important package, and some of them, uh, most of them are currently going in Congress, and two of, some of them are being implemented. Two of them recently were uh, the ideas, the concepts that we that we uh, advocate. They were implementing the new procurement law in Brazil. So it's it's very uh, pleased to see that after a few years um, of, of that, it's a sort of academic work with a with a, an advocacy aspect involved. So it pleases me to see that some of that legislation is uh, producing some impact and, and contributing to Brazil's transformation on that agenda. So on the subject of Brazil's anti-corruption agenda, I think a lot of people in the global anti-corruption community, people who might not know that much about Brazil, might not be Brazilian experts, nonetheless are aware in general terms that a lot has been happening in Brazil. And I think if you, you wound the clock back a few years, three, four years ago, 
My sense as an outsider, as a non-Brazilian, but who tries to follow corruption, anti-corruption issues, is there was a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about what had been happening in Brazil. Because of course, Brazil, like many countries in the region, like many countries at its stage of development, has faced very serious corruption problems, really serious embedded entrenched systemic corruption problems for a while. But there was a lot of uh, excitement about the so-called car wash or Lava Jato investigation, which had exposed serious corruption at the highest levels in Brazilian government and the private sector, and led to what seemed like uh, a number of very successful investigations, prosecutions, convictions, and so forth. Again, if, you, if we were having this conversation two, three years ago, I think the story would be very much, does it appear to be that the Lava Jato, the car wash investigation is finally getting rid of the, the so-called culture of impunity that had been so much a part of Brazilian law and politics, and frankly, that's so much a part of the law and politics in many other countries. A lot of people were looking to Brazil as a kind of inspirational story. Since that time, things have gotten more complicated. I won't say necessarily, I don't want to say good, bad, anything. I feel like, although I've written a little bit as an outsider, as a blogger about what's going on in Brazil, in the last couple of years, I feel like it's gotten sufficiently complicated that, that I don't really understand exactly what's happening. And it's one of the reasons I'm so happy to have you um, here on the podcast. Can you say a little bit to explain to me, but also to our listeners, what, what, is, what does the story look like? I want to ask you some more specific questions in a moment, but instead of me trying to summarize what's happened over the last five years with respect to the Brazilian anti-corruption agenda, could you provide as succinct a summary as you can of what the, what the story is so far? Right. Uh, Matthew, that's a great introduction. And in some senses, I think you introduced, uh, you presented quite well the, the change in the context, the way Brazilian society saw car wash operation or Lava Jato um, in the beginning. So it's an operation that lasted approximately seven years and started in 2014. And, uh, and the background of the operation car wash uh, is a mix of, of frustrations, anti-corruption operations that ended that didn't come to to an end to to an end that bring responsibility or at least find because even if if an operation ends by finding someone not responsible there is a there's a positive aspect by reaching an end so the perception that brazilians uh, have or and strongly had at the point uh, where car wash started is that the operations never reach an end either to find someone guilty or or not guilty uh, of of a corruption and um, uh, but then there was a mixed uh, background because some of the big operations uh, didn't end well or didn't end. They were annulled by the judiciary, or sometimes um, uh, they were. Uh, there, there was uh, sometimes with a fair cause, uh, a, an investigation that overstepped, uh, or uh, an evidence that was uh, produced uh, in a in a in a way that was considered late uh, illegal. Uh, but then there was also the, the Mensalon case, the monthly stipend case. It was uh, an alleged monthly payment to members of parliament to vote in favor of the government. That case lasted many years, and uh, it was also very highly, it was highly important also by the fact that it was dealing with uh, not only members of parliament, uh, but also is an investigation under the, the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. So naturally, a lot of attention. And that uh, that case um, led to 
to many uh, MPs being impeached uh, or found guilty, and some of them uh, ended up in jail. So the, the mixed feel, the mixed perception comes from from one case that was a paradigmatic case that started to show that perhaps the institutions may may work in a way that they are able to bring those responsible to justice. But on the other hand, was uh, a larger back, uh, background of cases um, showing that impunity still is the is the rule and not the exception. So car wash started with uh, with some some skepticism as many other operations and uh, but very early in the operation uh, it started to show some results and uh, the, the key thing here to understand also operation car wash also was perhaps the first big operation uh, that could rely on on a new legislation uh, that allowed for a sort of a plea bargaining. I say sort of because it's not exactly as the institute in the U.S., but similar, the fact that those accused of uh, or being investigated, they could negotiate with the prosecutor's office or with the federal police and and reduce their, their time or eventually get immunity. So that the possibility of this type of plea bargaining was very reduced in Brazilian law and became... Uh, widely used. So uh, it's fair to say that Operation Car Wash initiated this uh, and proved to many as a as a key element, key instrument for dealing with corruption, where you don't have robust evidence that traditional investigation can find, although you do have in some cases, right? Uh, so, so Car Wash advanced, and in the following three, four years, it became the major topic in Brazilian news. Every day you would have a new development, the operation used relied a lot on on the media and, and and fed the media and it was after that was criticized by the fact that relied uh, on the media counted on on the fact that it was being covered extensively and this was some of the criticism as i said but not only that so the operation managed to to gather gather the attention of the public because it reached high level ministers of the government uh, members of parliament and finally the perhaps the most important uh, defendant of the entire operation, not not uh, by the accusation, by the fact that he was accused of, uh, but by the figure, the former president, the then president uh, Lula, the former president, uh, actually in 2014, he was already a former president, but, uh, but he was running in 2018, he was running pre-campaign to become, uh, to run for a presidential campaign in 2018, and I think that was the key um, episode. The operation finally reached a second, a second degree conviction of former President Lula. And according to Brazilian law, uh, there was a change in the jurisprudence. I don't want to be too technical, but just in a nutshell, Brazilian jurisprudence on the pre- moment of prison of someone convicted of a crime, it changed many times in recent history, but uh, at the current, uh, when when Lula was charged and found guilty in the second instance, he was the jurisprudence has changed. So someone found guilty in a first degree and then secondary confirmed by a tribunal would be taken to jail, despite the fact that his case has not ended, and by the end of the case he could be found innocent in a late appeal to the Supreme Court or to the high. High Court of Justice, for instance. And in the case of Lula, that's what happened. So many were saying, well, it's unfair to put him in prison. And uh, early this year, in April, uh, his case, uh, as the most emblematic case of the operation, reached the Supreme Court, grounds of, of an appeal dealing with the procedural aspect. So it was not, the Supreme Court of Brazil did not discuss whether 
he was fairly found, fairly accused and found guilty of corruption or money laundering and other accusations. So the, the element there was whether the jurisdiction of former judge uh, Sergio Moro was the correct uh, jurisdiction for the case. And if they understood that it wasn't, therefore the cases, uh, all the procedural uh, acts from uh, early stage on, they were annulled. Therefore, uh, the four cases uh, uh, involving former President Lula that were in Curitiba under the jurisdiction of Sergio Moro, they were transferred to uh, the federal district jurisdiction and, and they are uh, in an early, very early stage. Therefore, the cases against Lula may still, they may still evolve, but uh, it's unlikely, very unlikely due to the, the, the average time of a prosecution, criminal prosecution, that they, uh, they will affect First, it's very likely that it will affect uh, his candidacy in 2022. And second, it's also unlikely that they will reach they will reach an end uh, due to um, statute of limitations, uh, since Lula is also someone above his 75 year old. Therefore, th- those are the circumstances. I mean, we can talk more about that. But that's I focus on the key case, which is involving former president, but there are. Plenty of other outcomes that we could uh, also discuss. I'm so glad you, you you touched on that because it was something I wanted to ask you about. And frankly, as a non-Brazilian who can't read Portuguese, I feel like my ability to understand exactly what was going on with Lula's trial and appeal in particular is, is difficult. So what you just said was very helpful. And I should say, just by way of general commentary here, my experience as an outsider who's occasionally written a little bit about Brazil and interacted with people who work in this area is Brazilian politics is extremely polarized and extremely personalized. And former President Lula in particular seems to inspire very strong feelings of enthusiasm and loyalty among some people and real, uh, I don't know, hatred might be too strong, but real strong dislike, distaste in, in others. It's, it's very, very difficult. I also, my understanding, you didn't mention this when you summarized the story, but it seems to me that an important part of the political and potentially the legal story uh, as things have emerged over the last couple of years are these allegations of bias, political bias, that have been leveled against uh, the car wash operation generally, but also against Judge Morrow in particular. So Judge Morrow was the presiding judge in Curitiba who presided over many of these cases, who sentenced a very large number, not all, but a large number of the prominent Lava Jato car wash defendants, including former President Lula. Judge Morrow subsequently accepted a position as the Minister of Justice in President Bolsonaro's administration, which was very controversial. We might talk about that later if we have time. He resigned that position. Also something I would love to talk about if we have time. But a couple of summers ago, almost two years ago, uh, The Intercept Brazil published a series of text messages that had been acquired by hackers, apparently from the, the phones of some of the Brazilian prosecutors that included correspondence with Judge Moore about the case. And there were allegations that these text messages indicated either misconduct by the prosecutors or uh, impermissible communications and possible bias on the part of Judge Morrow. So I wanna, again, I wanna ask all sorts of questions about this, but in terms of the most recent legal case that vacated 
Lula's, former President Lula's conviction, it's, I gather that there were a couple of different challenges to the conviction. One that you mentioned had to do with jurisdiction about whether those cases should ever have been in the Curitiba courts in the first place or whether they should have been in a different court. And that the initial Supreme Court decision vacating on jurisdictional grounds would not necessarily bar retrying former President Lula on the same charges in another court. But I was given to understand in some of the English language reporting I read on this that there was some subsequent Supreme Court decision addressing the allegations of impermissible uh, judicial bias, where if the court found in favor of Lula on that front, then there might be no possibility of retrial. But again, I'm confused on this. Can you explain both for me and for some of our listeners who might also be confused on this, what exactly is the current posture of the case and how do those two different lines of challenge, the jurisdictional challenge and the allegation of impermissible uh, judicial bias or other procedural improprieties relate to one another? I didn't include that in the summary because I think this is such an important part and I think it should be addressed in a proper question. I think you cannot talk about Operation Car Wash, about the history, without mentioning and discussing the hack messages that were revealed by the uh, by the intercept and and by a pool of media media vehicles in Brazil when the messages were uh, revealed they were revealed in, in parts the media was uh, helping Brazilians to understand and and helping to build a perspective a perception that there was a bias uh, for some that perception became more evident as more messages were revealed. So that opened a debate whether judges uh, can engage in, in, not in conversations, informal conversations outside the, the process. Uh, uh, so besides the formal conversation, and it's a general understanding that that is something that might not happen as it does in Brazil in other jurisdictions. But, but it became clear that uh, some of the conversations across a line that uh, that could be uh, reasonable in, in this type of conversation. So it was uh, for most and for the Supreme Court, there was the perception that Judge Moro in some circumstances suggested uh, the prosecutors to, to adopt some measures. Uh, they, uh, they would uh, lead some of the investigations, so to say. And, uh, and that was a key moment when that perception was built the case, the suspicion, we say suspicion, was the case raising a bias, allegation of bias against former Judge Moro was uh, also taken to the Supreme Court. So, so you had two discussions in parallel uh, before the Supreme Court. One, as I said, questioning the, uh, the jurisdiction and the other one questioning the, uh, the impartiality uh, or the lack of, of impartiality of Judge Moro. An episode quite that shocked the country it was unexpected when, when the rapporteur Justice uh, Fakin, uh, rapporteur of, of Car Wash in, in, the, in the Supreme Court, he of Car Wash Curitiba. You have Jumar Mendes, another justice who's the rapporteur of Car Wash, another development in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, but um, but those were discussing the ones uh, the, the, the cases before Curitiba. So it was a surprise when he decided and unexpected because the claim that the case was in a wrong, in a different jurisdiction that it should be, it was raised in the early stages of the, of the case, naturally. So it was surprising that that decision was taken just now, after former President Lula was convicted in, in one of the cases before three instances, and in another case before 
uh, two instances. So it was uh, a late decision, but it was to understand why the decision came at that moment. It's important to understand the other case, the habeas corpus questioning uh, the partiality of Judge Moro. So there was a, the, the, the court is divided and uh, the Supreme Court of Brazil is divided regarding car wash, regarding criminal law cases in general. It's fairly, many of the cases finish six to five. We have 11 justices, sometimes a slight greater majority, but, but it's, 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 the court is usually very split in those cases. So there was an attempt of, of the rapporteur to, um, to avoid the discussion of partiality, of bias of former Sergio Moro. So his attempt was, well, I preemptively, before the, the case of partiality being judged, I would say, well, there's no point of discussing the partiality because uh, all the acts, all the decisions taken by the eventually partial judge, they are not relevant. They are annulled by my decision. So this was a procedural uh, the, the decision with those impacts, those legal impacts. But the, the other side, let's say, uh, led by Judge uh, Gilmar Mendes, immediately on the following day, uh, also the case was not, not on the agenda, but decided to, uh, on, the, on the second uh, session of the Supreme Court, decided to, to, to judge, to decide on the, on, the, on the partiality, on the eventual bias of Judge Moro in an attempt to avoid the impacts of Fakin's decision. And this is what happened. And they decide that Judge Moro was also a partial, uh, and then the Supreme Court, the plenary of the Supreme Court, uh, recently had to decide how to reconcile those decisions and decide that both would have to prevail. And so in, in a way, Judge Moro uh, was considered biased. Therefore, uh, all not only his decisions, but all the all those investigatory measures that he decided, that he, uh, that he authorized, they were also uh, invalid. And so the case returned to a very early stage and due to the other decision, not only returned to early stage, but is now under another jurisdiction. So it's, it's quite, and one point, Matthew, that is interesting, that if, um, uh, if someone without a full background would, would come to the judgment, Moro's uh, impartiality judgment, they would find strange that the judges were being very careful uh, in saying, well, the reason why we're finding him as uh, finding lack of, of impartiality is due to, and then he would list uh, the fact that he raised the privacy of a, a conversation of former President Lula and, and Dilma and, and the family of, of, of President Lula, uh, that the fact that he was coercively conduced to, uh, to, to give a statement when he never refused himself, so it was unnecessarily coercive uh, taken to give a statement, and a few other moments, decisions. So they were framing the partiality due to some decisions so they were uh, trying to avoid and uh, to fundament the decision on the conversations. And that is due to the fact that the conversations, the hacked conversations, they are, uh, they're obtained illegally, right? There was a hacker who's currently uh, arrested. So uh, they, he obtained the conversations by hacking the telephone of prosecutors and apparently other authorities that might be other conversations that never became public. But so the discussion, the parallel discussion that happened was whether illegal evidence can be used in a case. Although the jurisprudence of Brazil, of Supreme Court, is, is quite certain in saying that you may rely on, on, a, on a, a, a evidence obtained illegally if it's to uh, acquit someone from a conviction, so, such as Lula. Well, if, if you know by a fact that there was an illegal element in that process that would lead someone to, to be free, to be free from that prosecution or from jail, 
that may be used, but not, not the other way around. So currently there, there are those who are trying to also investigate Judge Mo, former Judge Moro, the prosecutors, based on the conversations, whether they, they did any uh, illegality that should be, uh, uh, should be discussed uh, in a legal prosecution. But that's another story that's not defined yet. So I hope now I gave a, a more it, complete... It's uh, extremely background. helpful. That's very helpful for me because this is very puzzling to me. So if I understand you correctly, so the first, there's a decision by a single justice of the Supreme Court saying... Judge Moore never had jurisdiction in the first place, so we need to send this back. And that justice may, we don't know for sure, but that justice may have been trying to avoid having a ruling on a lack of impartiality by saying it was a jurisdictional issue. But then another justice kind of on the other side, if you will, of these disputes, the next day issued a decision saying Justice uh, Judge Moro, excuse me, was improperly biased. That's also a single justice of the court. That's the way the Brazilian system works. Then we go to the full court plenar- in the plenary session. And let me guess, the court splits six to five in the 11 justices. Is that right? It, it, in this case, it was not six to five. Not to six to five. It, what it was, was eight to three. Eight to three. Eight. But they say eight to three that there was bias. So everything that Judge Morrow did was improper. But they don't actually refer to the evidence from the leaked text messages because there's a controversy over whether you can properly use that. There's an argument they could that they would be legally allowed to use that because it's for a criminal defendant, but they just tried to avoid that altogether by saying, even if you don't look at that, the particular decisions that Judge Morrow made at various points indicated unlawful bias. Do I, do I have that right? Yeah, I would, I would raise two points, two uh, corrections. One is that, I mean, for a, a, an audience of uh, lawyers or academics in the U.S., probably strange, and I should have addressed that, the fact that justices are taking decisions individually, decisions with high impact. Uh, so that, that is a, a, uh, an institutional element of Brazilian Supreme Court, which is very problematic, by the way. We, we could discuss there are many uh, good uh, works written in English about that as well. So one point is, Justice Fakim took the decision individually. Justice uh, Mendes, on the following day, he took to the session, and the majority of the session uh, was with him. And then when the plenary discussed, the plenary never discussed whether uh, Moro was biased or not. They discussed whether the second session could take that decision and whether that decision could be rediscussed or not. And they said, well, that decision was final. The decision of the session was final. Obviously, on the background of the decision, they are agreeing with the bias, but that was not the issue discussed by the plenary. So yeah, many procedural elements, but I think you were right on the overall picture. That's what happened. Yeah. So thank you very much. I, I worry that some of our listeners might be getting a little bit you know, overwhelmed by all the nuances of Brazilian law, but let me ask you a bigger question. And it's one that's really, uh, it's not, it's not a, a factual descriptive question. You've done such a helpful job explaining just as a matter of descriptive fact what happened and what the court did and, and what the controversy was about. But I want to know, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you think that, I'll ask this in a general way and a specific way. Do you think as a general matter, the evidence that we've seen, the text messages and everything else that's in the public domain demonstrates that those who assert that the car wash operation was biased, had an, had an impermissible or, or generally unacceptable political bias against certain political figures is accurate. And the, as you know, there's a, there's a narrative in Brazil, particularly associated with Lula supporters, uh, though not exclusively, 
that says this was this was not really about anti-corruption, not only about anti-corruption. The prosecutors and the judge were biased against certain politicians, most uh, importantly, Lula and Lula's close political associates. I'll say as an aside, when these text messages came out a couple summers ago, I read the, fir- the first several were made available in English translation. Later ones were only in Portuguese, and then my ability to comment was not really there. I got to say, the first few text messages that I looked at that The Intercept uh, really emphasizes showing impermissible bias, I just didn't see it. I didn't see a lot of evidence of, you know, there are things that were maybe close to the line, but I wasn't sure. But then people tell me from Brazil, but you didn't pay attention to anything that happened in the 18 months after that. And now it's overwhelmingly clear that the prosecutors were biased and the judge was biased. The more specific version of the question I want to ask you is, as a law professor, as a lawyer, do you think the Supreme Court's decision a particular, both decisions, the jurisdictional decision and the decision regarding uh, the finding of bias that requires vacating the earlier proceedings was correct? Do you think that the court got it right? So those are not the same question. They're, they're different questions, but they're related. And I would love to hear your views on both of them. Right. To your first point, to your first question, I think, and that's why in the beginning of our, of our conversation, I mentioned that it was a progressive uh, perception myself and I think many other academics, analysts, well, we're trying to understand the whole picture and, and, and expecting further elements to assert that there was a bias on, on the way judge, former Judge Moro behaved. As uh, more conversations were released, I think that perception became more evident. And uh, so I understand the decision of finding Judge Moro bias was a correct decision in relation to defendant Lula. And this is an important element because the narrative that follows is is one that I do not agree. So it's it's important. On my perception, it was important to declare the judge bias on that case. Uh, Also because if there are elements that show political preference, it shows that um, uh, that that case, that there is sort of a hush to deal with that case. You know, you don't need much to find a judge bias. And so you had enough on the conversations, especially uh, after a couple of uh, releases of the hack conversations, to understand that he was biased. The prosecutors, I think, is, a, is, a, is another element. I mean, they are the accusation. It's evident that, uh, although, you know, part of the private conversation. And, and the other element is, I mean, there, are, there were conversations that were happening among colleagues, friends for many years. So there is a, a sort of a, a freedom there in that space that wouldn't happen on, on a public space, on a public sphere. Uh, so some of the, of the critics uh, uh, didn't give enough attention to that. that some of the, uh, the way they, they spoke, uh, perhaps informally, too informally, uh, should be considered the, by the fact that it was a, also a private, absolutely private conversation that was illegally obtained. What I would say that I, I think it's a problematic is the, the narrative that was built on, on that fact that Judge Moro was, was biased, correctly found biased by the Supreme Court. First, the Operation Car Wash. So the Operation Car Wash, and I think uh, I remember reading your uh, one of your articles, a, a book chapter that you wrote, and you correctly uh, pointed that, well, car wash became synonym of anti-corruption in Brazil. And on that generalization, which is a dangerous one, you had one case that would symbolize the whole uh, operation that that by itself was representing the whole anti-corruption agenda in the country. So it was the case of Lula. So once that case 
you find impartiality of the judge on that case, it's naturally uh, those opposing the operation, not only defendants, but those on, on frustrated by the fact that former President Lula couldn't run uh, on the 2018 election, and many others uh, who fairly criticized the operation, they were saying, well, everything was a fraud, everything was biased, and everything is useless. And I think that that's not positive uh, for, for the country. The operation developed in different branches, in different localities, before different judges, different task forces, different prosecutors. And, and it's absolutely uh, unfair and not appropriate to generalize the, uh, even if you find, if you understand that there was uh, any biased behavior by, by one of the judges, Judge, Judge Moro. So you, and now it's the moment, you know, to separate things, to say, well, I understand that many of the developments borrowed the legitimacy and the, uh, the media attention of the name, the brand, car wash. It was a powerful brand to borrow if you're a prosecutor initiating an investigation in another state, in Rio de Janeiro, in Sao Paulo, in Brasilia, for instance. Uh, but that, that was, that's the paradox of, of car wash. By using one brand and that brand becoming a very, very large, one of the key cases uh, having a, a problem and reaching a, an outcome of nulling part of the judgment, they, they're suffering. The moment you're having the risk of the effect uh, of that decision spreading throughout the operation. So car wash operation ended uh, as a task force, the prosecutor's task force ended, but many of the prosecutions, they're still going before courts. So some of them on first instance, they will, they will be before courts uh, in, for many years. So this is one point. And the other is the argument, right? The defendants, their lawyers, naturally, they're using this argument. They're trying to find elements in the conversations they could they could show bias of Judge Moro or any other judge in relation to their own defendants. So far, uh, no, no element uh, has been made public that would show bias in relation to other defendants. And one last element I think you pointed at is very important. The perception of bias, although the conversations were already enough, they showed some inadequate behavior in relation to the judge, but also the fact that he became Minister of Justice of President Bolsonaro, who was uh, was benefited by his decision, not only his decision, it's fair to say, the decision, he was the first judge to decide, but then different courts, different tribunals decided on the same direction, confirmed his decision. But the fact that former President Lula was taken from the election, also due to his decision, and he, uh, on my percept, on my uh, my opinion, he should never accepted the the role of of, of justice. And I said that at the time, uh, it would in, invariably, even if the the conversations would never be hacked, it would invariably um, bring the perception that the operation had a political bias. Yeah, you and I, I remember, were on the same side on this. I remember we had a conversation, Rio right around the time this was happening. And I was, I was happy to hear that you had the same view because you're an actual you know, Brazilian expert in these things. I thought it was a terrible mistake for Moro to accept this position. And I know some people that you and I both know in the Brazilian anti-corruption community that, that we both know and respect very much were a little bit more uh, open to the idea, partly because you know, this was before all the conversations came out and before Judge Moro's reputation, I think, suffered the hit that it took because of all this. There was the thinking that maybe he could actually, if he was in a position in the government, he could move some of these reforms, like the ones that you described, the new measures against corruption, 
through and get the administration to support them and that he might actually be able to make a bigger change in the role of justice minister uh, than he would be able to make as a judge. But um, your view at the time, which corroborated my much less expert view, was that it would not be worth it. Uh, that it would do it would do so much damage to the reputation of car wash and its impartiality that it wouldn't be worth it. And of course, things didn't go that well for for Judge Morrow's justice minister, um, partly because of, of Bolsonaro. And I, gosh, I wish we had more time to talk. I feel like we should do do another episode at some point. There's so much more to talk about, but we haven't talked that much about Bolsonaro, the current president. And what you just said, I think, is really important. Again, speaking from my outsider's perspective, it seems to me that Bolsonaro was one of the biggest beneficiaries in some direct sense from the car wash Lava Jato investigation uh, in at least two ways. First, because as you said, uh, former President Lula's uh, initial conviction, even though it had not yet been confirmed on appeal, was enough to prevent Lula from running for president, substantially increased the chance that Bolsonaro would win because the early polling suggested that Lula was still very popular and may well have won the election um, even though another candidate from his same party was was defeated. And also, Bolsonaro, interestingly, like many populist figures around the world, emphasized corruption as a campaign theme. Right? He talked about how politics is broken, we need a new politics, and he really is into this swaggering, tough talk persona. Former military guy, I'm the new sheriff in town, only someone like me can clean it all up. And I'm not an expert in Brazilian political science. I haven't looked at the polling, but it, it seems like that was at least an important theme for him to appeal to his like tough talking outsider persona, this perception that had been created, and you know, not a completely inaccurate perception that had been created by Car Wash that the Brazilian political elite across parties, left-wing parties, right-wing parties, centrist parties, et cetera, was deeply involved in very serious corruption. So, so Bolsonaro wins. And of course, right now, there's so much focus on the COVID-19 situation and the government's, I think, bad mishandling of that situation. But if we try to restrict our focus to the fight against corruption, in the time that we have left for this conversation, I would love to get your assessment of how the Bolsonaro administration has performed. Uh, you mentioned early on that there's actually some evidence that some of the measures that you and other activists would hope to pass might be moving forward. I know a lot of other people, though, have been very critical of the Bolsonaro administration, specifically on the anti-corruption front, with respect, for example, to the decision to, to end the dedicated Lava Jato task force, uh, concerns raised about the ethics and integrity of people close to Bolsonaro himself, including members of his own family, concerns about uh, a lack of transparency and concerns about politicization of traditionally independent institutions in Brazil, for example, the prosecutor general's office and so forth. But I, again, I would love to hear, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear your assessment as an expert who follows these issues. Overall, how do you think the Bolsonaro administration has done specifically with respect to advancing or, or setting back the fight against corruption? And maybe if you want to get a little in a little bit more detail, where do you think there have been some successes or things to celebrate? And where do you think the biggest problems or failures have been? Yeah, that's such an interesting point because, uh, well, that's the, the recent history of anti-corruption and, and the relation with politics. I think the first point there that we should we should raise is Bolsonaro was um, 
not the not only the beneficiary uh, in this sense of Operation Car Wash. I mean, Lula was ahead on the polls. It, it's way before the election, but even even close to the election was well marking well in, uh, in the election in the polls, and therefore even with the substitution of his uh, of his uh, another candidate of his party, he wouldn't perform the same way as Lula, who's a former president, so on and so forth. So. That, that's a, a direct benefit from the, the courts and, and car wash and the consequence of the investigations, right? But then there was another uh, important element that uh, Bolsonaro himself managed to capture this speech and the expectations, to fulfill the expectations that are great expectations about anti-corruption in Brazil. So together with the, with the car wash and the, and the frustration with different operations, so car wash Despite some of its problems, it's not a perfect operation. Uh, and and the, the Lula case showed a, a, a serious uh, problem, but other, other, other issues uh, arose and were corrected by courts, some not, not, not yet. But the point is an operation that has, its, um, it has the, the, the merit, so to say, of raising the expectation and, uh, uh, of, of most of the population. In 2014, 15, 16, the, say the early years, popular years of car wash, the, uh, Brazil has, is a country with many problems, unemployment, security, uh, health issues. And, and among all these difficult issues in Brazil, uh, corruption was, for the first time, picturing as the main problem of Brazil, according to popular perception. So it was natural that uh, politicians uh, could, you know, someone whose speech would would capture, well capture that expectation, would perform well in the ballots, in the, in the elections. And Bolsonaro managed to do that together with the, with the effect of the court's decision. So I think this is the first point. Bolsonaro had, and he brought very early after election, he brought Bolsonaro, he brought figures that would reinforce the idea that he was, that was going to be one of his priorities, right? And very early, his government showed that that was just a, a populist and, and rhetorical, just speech, just just rhetorics. He wouldn't manage to correspond that expectation in, in measures. Very uh, in his first year, that was already very clear. In fact, you mentioned the perhaps the key element there was the choice of prosecutor general, who is a key figure in Brazilian constitutional design. Is the is the only figure who can accuse the president. For example, now the president is being investigated by by serious omission and crimes in relation to dealing with the pandemic and the prosecutor general says no no that's not my that's not my test not my responsibility it's congress responsibility despite the fact that it's his responsibility as well and so he chose a prosecutor outside of the list elaborated by the by by, by the corporation which is a tradition not by law but it's not a, it's not it's not legally obligated to choose to choose one of the the three uh, indicated prosecutors but he it was a tradition that's being kept since since, since Cardoso's administration uh, since Lula's administration sorry in 2003 and he, he didn't he didn't correspond to that expectation and many other things attacking civil society attacking those who criticize and who uh, who control who do the uh, the social role of, of, of monitoring government and uh, so I think I think there are some some expectations, and uh, the the anti-corruption agenda is in a very delicate moment. I would say you have the polarization of politics. So on one side you have those supporting the president, who, who is no longer not even himself. He abandoned the speech of anti-corruption. He, he said in one of his speeches a while ago, said, "I ended car wash because there is no corruption in the country." 
the entire sentence is incorrect because he did not himself end the power wash. And there, there are corruption cases um, progressively more as, as time goes. So on one side, the anti-corruption agenda is not, in, is not with, with that side of politics and is no longer with the major party of the opposition, with the Workers' Party, Lula's party, uh, who's also very critical of car wash and, in general, what anti-corruption agenda may, may mean to a, to, to a general understanding of the public. So you have small parties there in the center. This is a political scene, trying to embrace, trying to push that agenda, but it's it's quite loose at the moment, right? So uh, the, we, we're expecting the coming years a necessary uh, repositioning of the agenda. It's natural that anti-corruption is also may be used as a political tool against those governments. So we, we're expecting uh, uh, some, some repositioning. Congress, however, acts uh, quite independently. So uh, the fact that may act independently, the fact that in the sense that some legislation may be approved uh, despite the president's, uh, the government's uh, perception that is positive or negative in some circumstances. So although the government has a majority, it, that majority is not is not clear in, in all of the subjects uh, being put to vote. So I would say the, the agenda is um, anti-corruption in Brazil is going through a very delicate moment. There are uh, serious risks of setbacks. However, some setbacks we've seen on the administration of Bolsonaro, some I mentioned, some others are being discussed uh, elsewhere. But in terms of uh, uh, legislative setbacks uh, so far, you have many initiatives. So you have those reacting against the Supreme Court, trying to, uh, to create a man, sack the Supreme Court or create a term uh, that is not currently Brazil's uh, justices. Uh, they have a tenure until 75. Um, so trying to reduce to a 10-year term or and many other uh, proposals of constitutional amendment are being proposed to weaken the Supreme Court, who is currently an important institution in, in, in blocking or limiting Bolsonaro's uh, ambition and authoritarian action sometimes. Uh, but, but so far, we haven't seen very serious setbacks. So Congress and the Supreme Court are managing to, uh, uh, to contain some of them. But, but institutions are already uh, weakened. Like a, such a strong and powerful institution, such as the prose General Prosecutor Office in Brazil. Let me give an example, very, very recent one. Yesterday, the Minister of Environment of Bolsonaro was accused of corruption, uh, of, of collaborating with the illegal logging in Brazil, in the Amazon, and, and sending it, it abroad. So, despite the fact that he's a minister of the government and the prosecution should be followed by the Prosecutor General, the federal police which is divided among those who follow Bolsonaro and those who are more independent. Uh, they filed a, a request to do a search warrant in the house of the minister uh, before a Supreme Court justice. And the prosecutor general was not informed of that action because both the justice and the police, federal police involved, they feared that the prosecutor general would, would inform the government, would try to, to prevent the action. So this is the type of deterioration of our institutions. So the institutions are divided and uh, they're trying to, to draw strategies within, within their competencies, their legal spaces. And uh, that's definitely, that's already a, a, something that is damaging the reputation of, of some figures and, and institutions. And I hope uh, we, we are going to be able to, um, to revert that, but not, it's not going to be an easy task. Yeah, on that subject, we're almost out of time, but but the point in which you just ended, I think, is an appropriate jumping off point to look to look ahead. Because again, when we started our conversation today, 
I noted that three or four years ago, there was a lot of optimism about what was happening in Brazil. And Brazil was in many ways an inspiration to other countries throughout the world that were struggling against what seemed like these entrenched cultures of impunity. And so if you could look, if a country like Brazil, which again had a history of entrenched corruption, was making such dramatic progress, this is a source of a lot of hope. And now in the last couple of years, particularly under Bolsonaro administration, which as you just said, is, has been in many ways worse. So you had not only has it not moved the agenda forward, but it's been moving it backwards in very worrisome ways. Uh, it's a little bit of a darker time. But of course, if one takes the longer view, the fight against entrenched corruption is often sort of two steps forward, one step back, and the pendulum swings back and forth. But so right now, Brazil, it looks like, again, I always feel self-conscious saying this because I'm an outsider, but from my outsider's perspective, Brazil's in a very difficult time with respect to this agenda, especially because, if, unless I'm wrong about this, the pre next presidential election will be two years from now, a little more than two years from now. And although two years is a long time in politics, and maybe it's a really long time in Brazilian politics, if we had to guess, the chances are it will be President Bolsonaro running against former President Lula, neither of whom has shown himself to be a great friend to the anti-corruption agenda. I mean, Lula and his supporters have spent the last five years saying this whole thing is a hoax and it's a coup and it's a, a right-wing conspiracy. And then Bolsonaro, as you just said, has done everything. He shut down the operation. He's done everything he can to undermine it, despite having rode on the popularity of car wash to get into power in the first place. So I guess what I'm asking you to do as we conclude our conversation today is to give me some reasons not to be thoroughly depressed about the prospects for the anti-corruption agenda in Brazil. So you're facing this very difficult situation where um, strong political support from the top for an anti-corruption agenda does not look that likely in the medium term. So what's the strategy? I mean, I know you're, you're, a, you're a scholar, uh, a researcher, but you're also, as you said, uh, an activist. You're involved with anti-corruption advocacy groups. What do you see as the way forward to maybe take some of the good momentum that was generated by Lava Jato, some of the things that were good about that operation, and carry them forward, even though the reputation of that operation has been damaged somewhat, uh, by more recent events or revelations, and even though the most powerful political forces in Brazil right now, far from demonstrating cross-party support for an anti-corruption agenda, if like if Lula and Bolsonaro agree on anything, if there's one thing they seem to agree on, it's that we don't need the Lava Jato operation, and this shouldn't be the main focus of uh, Brazilian politics right now. So, so what do you do? What's what's your what's your what are your thoughts about the way to make progress in this difficult environment? Right. Well, um, yeah, it's an extremely difficult question because we have many possibilities and open open scenario ahead of us. But um, but it's already very close. If you think it's actually the elections in Brazil, it will happen in October 2022. So we're less a bit more a year and a half uh, from the election. So the campaign will actually start in a year. And yes, you're right. Uh, the scenario, the current scenario, is uh, pointing uh, at uh, a second a runoff between former President Lula and President Bolsonaro. The, um, but there are, there are attempts to build a, a third way, and it's very predictable. The third way, you have Ciro Gomez and a few other potential candidates. They are vocalizing the anti-corruption speech. 
because they realize that both sides, they, they are not, it's not going to be, despite the fact the population holds still a lot of hope that anti-corruption would be an important agenda in, in whichever government uh, comes, but it's not a preferential uh, topic for both. Both has, have a lot to lose in, I mean, they would have to explain and to deal with the, with, with the criticism regarding, you know, past the former President Lula and, and Bolsonaro's current, uh, current administration. But I, I would say on Lula's aspect, though, if, if, Lula's, if Lula wins again, it's important to point out, I mean, to recognize that during his administration, despite the fact that he was accused of corruption and, and had those prosecutions and some of the figures in his government, uh, his administration was it was marked as, as a very positive administration in that agenda. Uh, some of those positive reforms that I mentioned and that were later used uh, even to prosecute uh, Lula and his allies, they were passed and pushed and supported by his administration, together with, uh, with, with many other initiatives in terms of uh, transparency, you know, those responsible for very independent transparency agency. And, and I could list a few other, the significant part of the literature will, will, will recognize that federal police suffered a significant change, became an elite and international uh, level police under his administration, former Minister of Justice, Marcio Tomas Bastos, uh, who gave a lot of uh, autonomy, raised salaries, I mean, I could list a, a few other things. So just to point that, despite the fact that there is a disconnection with the speech, I would say that there's hope that if that side wins the election, uh, there is hope that you know a, a more serious bureaucrat committed to that agenda will again have uh, a, the chance to develop uh, new legislation and, uh, and develop new story. But, and one last point, I think, so what can be done? Uh, in relation to society at the moment, this is a perspective. We don't know who's going to win the election, but I think I think the uh, the prosecutors' uh, office, the uh, the different prosecutors uh, throughout the country, they still hold a lot of uh, a lot of prerogatives, a lot of power to investigate, and uh, and I think they, they they should focus on. I mean, there is a lot of focus on on political agents. So many of the prosecutors look the spotlight, while I mean, and sometimes a strategy. Uh, copying uh, uh, money politi in Italy and sometimes explicitly mentioning that reference, but perhaps that that's no longer a better initiative. Anti-corruption was hardly associated and criticized by being an anti-politics, anti-party, and uh, I think that doesn't help. I mean, we should uh, have the common ground that politics is is there. Parties have their role, and politicians will have their role. So I think if 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 the prosecutor, not only prosecutors, but judges and the, all, all the agencies involved in, 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 uh, in, in the anti-corruption and different, different fronts of uh, fighting corruption, if they would uh, keep a serious war, uh, perhaps low profile as, as, as it should be in some cases, avoiding and you know, respecting the presumption of, uh, of innocence. I think there's a lot uh, to gain. I mean, many cases and, and they have the potential, they have the, the, uh, the knowledge and the infrastructure to, to advance those cases. So, in, in the perspective of some years, uh, more cases may, may, may reach a high courts with a, with a very solid, uh, solid decision, solid accusations. And as more and more cases will reach a conclusion, reach an end, find those who are responsible, I think the anti-corruption anti uh, institutions may uh, find its, uh, its place again. And, and for those who think they lost credibility, they will regain. So that's a perspective that can be built with some patience and and uh, a lot of a lot of good work. 
Well, I hope you're right. And I'm very glad that uh, people like you are going to be part of that good work. Thank you so much for taking the time today to explain to me and to our listeners some of the complexities of recent developments in Brazil's struggle against corruption, as well as sharing your insights into both what has happened and what maybe could happen going forward. So again, my name is Matthew Stevenson. Uh, this has been the latest episode of Kick Back the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. My guest today has been uh, Michel Moalem, uh, a, a lawyer, law professor, consultant, and activist based in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Uh, Michel, thank you again for uh, sharing your time and expertise with us today. Thank you very much, Matthew. It was such a pleasure, and I hope to be here Thanks again. Thanks for listening to a new episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about the topic, check out the show notes of this episode. Also, make sure to listen to our second episode ever, in which we interviewed Deltan Dallagnol, who was the lead prosecutor in the Lava Jato operation and who played a key role in the Intercept revelations mentioned in the interview. As always, if you like what we do, there are three main ways to support us. Write us a review on your favorite podcast platform, follow us on Twitter under at KickbackGAP, or become a Patreon at patreon.com slash kickbackpodcast. We are fully self-funded, so even small amounts help us greatly to improve the podcast. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleimpers, and me, Christopher Starke with music by Kay Han Golkar. That's it for today. Have a great week. <laughs>